This is EntreEd Talk, the podcast for entrepreneurial educators by entrepreneurial educators. We are your hosts, Toy Hirschman and Amber Ravenscroft. This podcast is created by the National Consortium for Entrepreneurship Education, or EntreEd for short. We are super excited to be here today with Kat Pascal, and she is a second-generation immigrant, entrepreneur, and advocate for Hispanic entrepreneurship. So we're super excited because we actually have an industry focus with today's podcast. She is the co-founder of Farmbergesta Restaurants, Spotless America Facilities, and a nonprofit initiative called NCL, which will allow her to explain a little bit in depth. So welcome, Kat. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Amber and Toy. Um, Samantha, thanks for inviting me. This is we great. should highlight the fact that we had Sam on our last podcast and we can't get rid of her. <laughs> so she, just, <laughs> she just keeps bringing some awesome guests for us. So thank you, Sam, for uh, introducing us to Kat. We're really excited. A little bit more about your background and like what you're doing and kind of, I mentioned three different things. So I'm sure you have a lot of stuff in the air here. Yeah, so um, just a little about me. I am, you mentioned I'm a second generation immigrant. Uh, Both my parents are are from Colombia, South America. Uh, I am born and raised here in the the United States. From a young age, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship or business ownership. Um, And that's just from seeing uh, both my parents kind of living that American dream or trying to live that American dream. At a very young age, I was put into that world and just very interested in it. So it was kind of that that brought us into forming our own companies or and I say our, my husband and I, we started forming our own companies when uh, at the age of about 20. So for about 10 years now, we've, we've managed businesses. Spotless America Facilities started at a co-working space um, here in Roanoke. And actually that was Samantha's yeah. co-working space that allowed us to have a brick and mortar office feel. Um, and now we employ about 30 people. So that's, we're going on our ninth year there. Farmbriessa restaurants, we started about a year ago and are now opening our second restaurant here in the Roanoke Valley. And the NCL, which is Nuestro Comercio Latino, which actually translates to being a chamber of commerce is to, uh, to mentor and help build Hispanic ownership um, or Hispanic businesses here in Roanoke as well. That's amazing. And you have over a thousand members locally for that organization? We do. Uh, We started the online platform and grew that. In a year and a half, we have over a thousand one hundred members as of now. So we're very proud of that. And now we're mentoring uh, about six to eight businesses and hope to double that within the year. That's incredible. That's, I mean, that trajectory for growth is huge. Got it. And just a frame of reference, um, Kat was one of my first members at the co-working space that I started here in Roanoke. But what's so interesting is that um, that same space, as it evolved, it, we're, it's in its third location. And there's actually 175 members now. So that's 175 entrepreneurs working in Roanoke. Well, when I saw that she um, had launched this online movement that has become an in-person movement of a thousand, I thought, wow, that is so impressive just to primarily encourage Latino entrepreneurship. I just thought that was really, really neat. That's incredible. So, so Kat, you mentioned that from a very young age, you, and I guess it was through your parents and and seeing their efforts um, that you were interested in entrepreneurship. Was there anything else that sparked your interest or was it just watching what your parents were doing and working hard? And was, was there anything in school or anything in your childhood that also sparked that interest? So I can recall that 
always trying to find mentors or trying to look towards mentors uh, in my teachers or people that the adults around me. In particular, when I was in high school, I went into the marketing program that was Mm -hmm. offered uh, when I was a sophomore or junior. And the primary reason I went into that was because of my interest in learning how to scale a company. I saw my parents have a a small company, but never able to scale it at a, at a large level. I mean, employing people, it was really a mom and pop uh, business. And so learning the logistics and learning how to navigate, um, or scaling that company was really of my interest. And teachers took great interest in, in me because I asked a lot of questions. I was called curious cat all the time. <laughs> so they were always at it. They were always like inquisitive cat, curious cat. And so I would stay after and ask a lot of questions and ask uh, who I could go to so that I could get more information um, because I was already getting a lot of information and mentorship from the teachers that were involved. In fact, I still keep in touch with my marketing teacher. I was just with them yesterday and was able to go into the school. They launched a program three years ago in entrepreneurship at the school. Oh, you're kidding me. No, what it, school was that? It's Northside High School at, uh, in Roanoke County. Oh. So they launched that three years ago. And so and now I'm able to go speak to her students that are interested in business ownership. Um, but yeah, I'd say in high school, it was mostly in high school. Had it started at a younger age, maybe I would have, you know, even been able to do more things, um, since then. Were you in DECA? No, no, no. The DECA, the, the kid won a DECA competition. Yeah. It's going to Florida. Yeah. You know, that DECA is where I started. Also my love of, um, of, of business and entrepreneurship is the only thing that I could relate to entrepreneurship. Um, and I knew it wasn't exactly right. It wasn't on point, but it was something that I liked. So that's kind of neat that we yeah. both started in marketing. The, so let me also mention that part of that um, program, the marketing program allowed students to leave early so that they could go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a minimum amount. I mean, there was a maximum amount of hours that you could work. So I would always, <laughs> I would always work more hours. Um, and my teacher would call my, my managers to see where, if I was there, but I mean, I never missed her class ever. If I missed any classes it definitely wasn't hers mm-hmm. but she was instrumental um to to my growth and my interest in in that program so when you when you graduate I'm just really curious about your because you started spotless America at 20 yes so when you graduated did you how like what was the process after high school like how did you yeah I'm really interested uh, in this yeah absolutely so uh graduated 18 uh went to community college here, took several classes. I still do have several classes and I'm considered um, a stop out, not a dropout because I have occasionally gone back and taken classes and I'm actually in the process of finishing up now as an adult learner. But I graduated high school at 20 years old. I started a family. My husband and I started our family and we were both full-time workers in corporate America, but we always from a young age, we were doing different things, selling jewelry, uh, Colombian jewelry, or, or things just uh, here and there. Mm-hmm. So at 20 is when we decided that we wanted to have a third income. And mm-hmm. so when we decided that we needed our third income and trying to leave the, the corporate America feel, well, we decided to start something that didn't require a lot of overhead. 
we didn't have a lot of capital really. And so what we did is we kind of tapped into our savings or credit, and then we started Spotless America facilities. And here's what's so cool about that. What nobody realizes is that, you know, when you think of Spotless America and it might be, you know, a commercial cleaning company. And that's what I thought when I first met her. But then she talked about at her peak, how many employees were there? Okay. So we had to subcontract a lot. And we, I mean, we've had to bring in 60 people on top of the 30 people that we already had employed. So we're constantly having these influxes of employment and then, you know, as subcontracting or contracting work goes, then you kind of release them. But I have a, a base of at least 30 employees. So that's not normal. That's, that's something special. So when I heard that, I, I called my friend at the Roanoke Times and I was like, you need to meet this girl. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Like, how do you even communicate with, manage that many facilities and that many employees? And it's, a, it's essentially, it's a lot of project management. Yeah. So like I said, I've always been a curious cat and I've asked tons of questions with uh, going into corporate America. I was able to learn a lot about leadership, a lot about how to delegate tasks, how to, Mm -hmm. to coach. And so as we're growing our company, we're over here scaling in corporate America, but also being able to employ all these people. Um, So that was, and has been one of the biggest highlights um, being a part of a entrepreneurship world. Kat is the quintessential adult learner. And I keep on telling her that she's a future doctorate. <laughs> I guess it's going to happen. We talk about it every day. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, this, this whole process and I don't, I think, I mean, I, we've talked, I follow you. I, I see what you're doing and I don't think I realized how quickly you did it. Like that is impressive. Um, it, it feels quick. <laughs> and, yeah. and- I mean, it, it seems quick, but in the whole the whole trajectory of it, it's really um, sleepless nights. <laughs> you know, just a whole bunch of hard work. Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of focus. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, Farm Burgessa and how that came to be. Uh, we have always wanted to own a restaurant. And so when I said that we didn't come or we don't, we didn't have the capital to start anything else, we started something that took little overhead, which was our commercial cleaning business. And that was the platform or the stepping stone that allowed us to go into opening a restaurant. And so about a year ago, we started planning, um, opening a restaurant, the opportunity uh, presented itself and we jumped right on it. And when I say the opportunity presented itself, I mean the location presented itself and the deal was too good to pass up where we decided to go ahead and take the risk and open a restaurant or at least start looking into opening a restaurant and taking uh, what we've done with Spotless America and putting it into Farm Burguesa. What did I tell you? I told her that, do you know, like the failure rate of restaurants is huge. Oh, you're Sam making me nervous. Like, what are you doing? You're going to give me a heart attack. Don't worry, Sam. <laughs> this can't, you know? And so I'm, I mean, this is one of my closest friends and I'm just thinking about her and all the hard work she's done. But what I learned is not to necessarily underestimate her because she always thinks bigger. You know, there's always a bigger plan, a scalable plan, a licensing plan, you know, and that I think is really, just like I said, I think that's just really special way of thinking as opposed to just opening one restaurant. Since I said we've always wanted to open a restaurant, it's almost as if we've always kind of been working on this business model. And so we, throughout the years, we always said, what kind of restaurant would you open? How much would it take to open it? So we've done our research and we did a lot of 
back leg work that kind of left it sitting there of saying, this is our goal and this is what we're going to work towards. And so when the opportunity arose for us to, to find that location or to open that location, we said, this is it. Like, let's jump on this opportunity and get on it. So we brought family on board, which is very typical of me and my family. We always kind of tried to include our each other. And I brought along my brother with me. Um, so my husband, and my brother, and we're all focused on um, trying to grow this into like a franchisable model. We have the, the basis of it. And just last week, we presented it over to a Shark Tank pitch. Um, like the national shark the tank. national shark tank pitch uh like something that we watch and we have watched from the very beginning and something we look forward to to trying you know to one day do and then we jumped on the opportunity to pitch it to them so what's your plan for packaging a restaurant how so, do you pack, package a restaurant for scalability scalability so <laughs> with the restaurant um i mean just with anything i mean we are self-employed, we can lose a business tomorrow and then we are at risk of losing our livelihood. And so we have to look for multiple streams of income. So what do we do? We have looked into things like our sauces. We're bottling our sauces. We're using universities Mm -hmm. in this area, uh, like Virginia Tech, Mm -hmm. uh, UVA, and looking into them and talking to them about packaging and the best ways to package Mm -hmm. um, and pilot are the sales of our homemade recipes. Um, Aside from that, things like t-shirts, things like the knowledge consulting, I can provide food safety. Um, I'm a proctor or a a trainer for food safety. So packaging that into, to help other restaurants, that's another stream of income for me. And do a scalable model. And so the the idea is that if someone um, purchases a license or a franchise to Farm Bergesa, then they have the scalable model all packaged. So the food safety model package, everything is video oriented, which is kind of neat. Online platforms to organize everything, POS systems. I'm kind of speechless. I cannot imagine what that requires. And by the way, if if you go, here's what blew my mind. And I knew it was, again, something special. She does special things all the time. I like to be friends with the smartest people, you know, in their own industry. And she has that in many different ways. What I noticed is that their burgers are unbelievable. If you come to Roanoke, you have to go to Farm Burgesa. And it's not just me because I'm her friend. Go on <laughs> Facebook and you'll see all these reviews of the burgers and how amazing they are and how impressed people. I mean, how many reviews are there? There's over 6,000 um, likes on the page currently. And we've been open eight months right now. Wow. I mean, that That's doesn't great. happen by accident. No, I don't. Under, I'm sorry. I just cannot wrap my brain around it. Like that's incredible. And especially in the, like the restaurant industry, there's usually this like, when you launch a restaurant, people expect it to be bad because you're figuring out like the kinks, but it's been eight months and you have, that's insane. Yeah. We, uh, we will end the year profitable. And so the nice thing is, is that when you do studies or you look at the, the research behind uh, restaurants, they have very low profit margins, but uh, in the first three years, they're not making profits or at least a large amount of them are not. And so I'm fortunate and blessed really to, to see this type of support with the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to, to package it into hopefully with a five to 10 year plan that we've already been making, uh, be able to launch it, whether it be on the East coast or nationwide. You know what the most amazing thing is 
to me is that you're not doing all of these things and you're a mama at the same time. That's just incredible because when my kids were small, I could barely feed myself and <laughs> and you're running a whole corporation. So <laughs> it was difficult, but I'd say they were, they are the number one reason and motivation behind it because when it was, when I was 20 years older, when we were 20, we were starting our family and they were like, well, what do we do? Like, we're just bankers, <laughs> you know, like, well, let's hone in on what it is that we like to do and what we're, we feel like we excel at. And then we launched our companies. So I'm fortunate enough to have the flexibility and the time with my kids now, um, because I was able to leave the workforce from the eight to five. Mm-hmm. And now I get to really manage my day the way that I want to. And you have help. And and yeah, I have help. I mean, I am, I'm a huge believer in collaborating and I'm a huge believer in it takes a village. Uh, So I find people around me. I have a nanny, a full-time nanny, Mm -hmm. and uh, I have her to also help us make lunches. So, I mean, those are things that I needed to focus on. And while I felt as if I was taking away from my duties, I said, I need to focus on growing our business. I can have somebody else make a meal for me, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so, so instead of buying certain luxury items, she chose to invest in the support that she needed in order to grow and um, create a sustainable model, which I think is just really forward thinking. You know, some entrepreneurs try to do everything, including the parenting. They have to be the best at everything. But the truth is you have to get help. Yeah, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be married to a, a serial entrepreneur as well. You know, there's different types of entrepreneurs and he is more the riskier type. And, but at the same time, he's more of the one who's like, Kat, this is what you need to do or this is what we need to do and helps me understand that as well. So it takes two very um, different minds to almost complement one another. You guys would love Jimmy. He's the crazy <laughs> one. He's the, you know, every family has the crazy entrepreneur. He's the crazy, he's the crazy entrepreneur. <laughs> and we'll do the next episode. We'll be like, this is Jimmy. <laughs> She's the very Jimmy. <laughs> She's the very organized, thoughtful, uh, analytical, more C in compliance and DIS. Um, and she actually has moved out of that space a, a lot more than when I first met her. I moved into that space and she moved into, oh, we just, you know, put together a minimum viable product. We don't lose anything for that. (laughs) I thought that was a really cool shift in how we both thought we really influenced each other. That was going to be my question, actually. Like, so we are learning a lot about MVPs and like part of my master's is having a venture that we're supposed to launch or like have a business plan that we can launch at the end. But like, how do you, in minimal viable product, if you could also define that for people that are listening when you, when you talk about it, how did you decide or how did you create or like, what was your process with that in your venture development? Okay. So minimum viable product is, and you can help me define this. It's taking an idea and doing it in the most budget friendly (laughs) bootstrapping way that you can find possible and seeing if it works or if you get good response from it. And if it doesn't, then you exit. If it does work, well, maybe that means move on to the next step. So do you want to define that differently? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd say close, I'd say close to that. It's just the minimum. Um, what's the minimum that you can create in order to show people what you want to do in the least financially risky way. And so, yeah, the yeah. test. So some people can, um, some people might create a website on Wix and that is how they display their minimum viable product. And some people create things and that's theirs. 
with the restaurant. Um, so we have a unique menu and we have very, a very small menu. So we don't elaborate on it. It doesn't, it's very streamlined in the store. Uh, years ago, we started, we had a hot dog cart. And so the hot dog cart, very minimal viable product, like very small scale. It's not a restaurant. You can put it in your backyard and it's still there. And, and so you're not worried about it. So we started with the hot dog cart. We went to locations that would let us park it in their parking lot. And we started making Colombian style hot dogs. And we would just put it on the internet or we'd put it on Facebook or whatever. We'd message our friends and we'd sell out within an hour. I mean, people were coming to, to buy these Colombian style hot dogs mm -hmm. by Jimmy in the rain. <laughs> I mean, it was just like incredible. We were just baffled at like how, how much people were really interested in the Colombian style hot dog. It was new. People hadn't seen it before. It took different types of flavors. <laughs> You're laughing. So because I'm thinking back on, uh, in the co-working space, when Jimmy came to me one day and he goes, so I'm going to get a hot dog cart. <laughs> what do you think? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, I'm very comfortable with, with risk, but there's something about the world of restaurants that just makes me so nervous. So that was our MVP for our restaurant. I mean, we took the results. We took it back. We looked at how much we spent. We looked at what our profit was, how much money, how much time do we spend there? Was it something that we could think about creating something larger? And so, like I said, that was always kind of simmering in the background as we're trying to scale our commercial cleaning business. Yeah. When I do um, teacher trainings for teachers, I tell them to view like one entrepreneurship lesson as their MVP and see how the students react to it before you shift a whole unit, right? Because a lot of time development goes into these whole units of lessons aligned to certain standards. And rather than doing an entire unit and creating this whole entrepreneurship initiative and not knowing whether your students will even be receptive to it, why don't you just try one lesson? And Toy and I always preach, like, just start, just try once and then see what happens and then it runs. So I would say, Toy, that's our MVP. We actually have, um, I don't think you've seen it, Amber, my, my MVP lesson. No, I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it, it's really only works it. It's not really great with middle school. It has to be high school because just because of the technology involved, but it's, but it's really neat. I stole it from someone. I didn't create it. Um, <laughs> I tweaked it, but yeah, yeah, we do. Cause we tell them just want, that's our, just do one thing speech. Mm -hmm. And then every time they just do one thing, then they're like, Oh, this was awesome. The kids were engaged. This was amazing. So yeah, I guess that, that kind of is ours. I didn't know we had one, but <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's perfect. And I, I mean, I think that's really interesting, especially for students to understand what that means, because I think oftentimes when students hear the word entrepreneurship, they go straight to business launch and they don't recognize that you have to like test it, that, that there's many ways to test this without costing a lot of money. I think the example they gave us in class was like Dropbox all they did for their MVP was like a landing page that said, would you like a lot of space? Sign up. And they had, it was just like a link to sign up to see if you were interested. And that's what they launched it from. They didn't have a functioning software when they did their MVP. So I think it's super cool. And I'm glad we brought that up because I think that's a big piece of entrepreneurship education that we don't necessarily focus on. And also I think MVP has just been really common in the world of tech, but mm -hmm hasn't been as common. Things like lean startup and pivoting iteration and an MVP are fairly new, ironically, to Main Street. And that, but that's, those are really powerful principles to teach 
our young entrepreneurs early as opposed to write a whole business plan and then you launch, you know, and there's a place for that, but it's not early stage entrepreneurship. I mean, it can't hurt. It's just, what if you write this huge business plan and there's multiple flaws that you could have avoided if you just created a minimum viable product and tested it? Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, the hot dog cart, because a lot of people I feel like are launching food trucks. Like that's like the new move. Like they're launching, especially in major cities because rental space for actual physical space is so expensive. They're testing out their business on food trucks and then they're gaining the price. So I think that that's, it's a way that entrepreneurship is like trending. Um, Doesn't it seem like the minimum viable product of the food truck? Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly how we started or my parents started is the food truck. And so that was 20 years ago. Um, So that's where I grew up. I grew up in a food truck. And so you grew up in an MVP. So you're well. (laughs) Yeah, but but it stayed there, you know, and so like always, always wondered as a kid, just wondered like, well, what could we do to make this bigger? How can we have two cars? How can we have three trucks? And so unfortunately, there are very mm. there are a lot of obstacles that kind of hinder that. Um, and so yeah. a lot of the, what we were talking about was kind of uh, capital, finding that capital for for these own these Hispanic owners. My parents were first immigrants here, uh, so they didn't have a lot of history um, with credit, and they didn't have a lot of history with almost anything. I mean, they were here trying to assimilate into a culture into the United States while trying to figure it out really. And so a lot of things lacked or were, uh, they faced a lot of adversity in order to try to grow that business. So thinking about that now, and I feel as if that's our passion because we kind of find a similarity into the people that are our business owners or Hispanic business owners, and we're trying to help them find that scalable model of their business. You know, and I think that a lot of um, educators and policymakers don't immediately understand the the impact and the value of Latino entrepreneurship and Hispanic entrepreneurship. And maybe you can talk about how profound the Hispanic entrepreneurship and Latino is for the United States economically. Economically, um, well, Latinos open businesses at like a 46% higher rate than others do in the entrepreneur world or the business startup world. Less than 3% actually make it to like the 1 million uh, a year revenue. So, and those 3% are usually the people that have a little more uh, navigation or experience of navigating the system or mm-hmm. even finding the capital, finding um, tax, knowing the tax codes, knowing mm-hmm. who to reach out to and finding the support system like Chamber of Commerces. So then you have this 97% that stay too small uh, that just are either employing themselves um, or employing a very small amount of people. So if we were able to tap into that, that large number of people that have the initiative, have the motivation and are interested in starting their own business, then we're able to, to grow the workforce. We're able to grow the economy and how much money we're contributing to the economy. It's great. I mean, it's astronomical, the numbers that are, or that Latinos contribute to the United States. Yeah, you know, and what's so interesting is she's constantly sending me statistics that will make it into my dissertation because they're all very credible statistics. For example, um, Stanford Business School has published tons of research about this. In fact, she brought one. I have one right in front of me, and it says uh, verbatim, the Latino-owned businesses contribute more than $700 billion in sales to the economy annually. 
700 billion. That is profound. And that is one of ton of statistics that she has brought to me to sort of, and it really opened my eyes as a researcher and as an entrepreneurial advocate to the importance of Latino um, entrepreneurs. But you know, the policymakers, the message doesn't always make it to them. And so she yeah. just came back from Capitol Hill two days ago. What, what was it that you were? The, so um, because the NCL, Nuestra Comercial Latino, is a newer initiative here in the, the Southwest region of Virginia, what I decided to do is to start reaching out to larger organizations that are doing this and finding out what's working for them in different cities. So reached out to Richmond, Washington, D.C., and the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce is the lar- largest organization uh, supporting businesses and chambers in the United States. There's a a very large number of what they actually contribute to um, these chambers. So nonetheless, every year they have a legislative summit. And what they do is we're advocating or go into policymakers, um, representatives and saying, uh, hey, this is why immigration is important. This is why it's important to support Latino business owners. This is why it's important that uh, you look at early age education um, and entrepreneurship. So uh, things like that. And it was a great experience. I loved every second of it. And I mean, they're really receptive and it, it almost feels like they understand the importance of it, but bringing stories to the table, actual stories um, and actual numbers to the table is what's going to make that change and make that difference. There were presidential candidates there, um, both Democrat and Republican. So this should be a bipartisan conversation. It yeah. should be a partisan conversation. This is economic development with truthfully, yeah. I mean, it really posit- can positively impact both sides. It's absolutely bipartisan. Absolutely. So, Yeah. I mean, we're excited. I'm excited that this platform's even able to, t- to help any part of that narrative move forward, just because I, you're right. I think it's more of a narrative that's just not told. Like I, you said that figure and I was astounded. I did not realize it, but, but now that you said it, it's not surprising, I guess, to me, like, I'm not shocked by it. You know, that's the backbone of many communities and some of the longest standing businesses, especially in rural America that I can think of. So I'm really not surprised by that. But I think I'm surprised most by the narrative that's not being told around it. Yeah, really. Should we drop some of the reports in a Google Doc for you again? Yeah, we'll share. So yes, (laughs) we'll share those reports out when we launch the podcast. We are unfortunately running a little bit close to time. So is there anything else that you'd like to cover in the last couple of minutes? And Toy, please feel free if you have any other questions. Um, I'm just sitting here like, you're blowing my mind. (laughs) I'm like, wow. I'm so glad that you're an advocate. I'm so glad you went to Capitol Hill. That's just incredible. That's really incredible. And it's something that we need to hear more about. It's something we need to share more about. What are you doing next? Like, we, we, <laughs> yeah. So we've got, um, so with Nuestra Comercial Latino, uh, like I said, we want to double that number of Hispanic owned businesses here in Roanoke. Also would like to see um, a large number of startups in the Roanoke uh, and surrounding areas because we're supporting other smaller cities um, as well. Talk about some of your partners. Well, the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce is one of them. Uh, but that's the head of it basically but they also work very closely with like the stanford statistics and that's what we kind of base our advocacy behind um here i've had a large number of support i've had um the chamber of commerce is here in roanoke i've had 
uh, executive directors, nonprofits. Um, one in particular is called the Advancement Foundation mm-hmm. that took a large interest in it because their focus is business startups. And so they have over 150 businesses competing for a pool of money of over $200,000. And so the small businesses that we are mentoring right now will be competing in that. We encourage them to compete in that and we're helping them um, kind of put together their pitch for this small business development. They have a couple of people on their staff, but one in particular has been um, from the very beginning, the second I said, I see a need. Will you help me find the need? And in numbers, really. And we look, we boiled it down to and looking into the city numbers, the census to find out how many business owners were there actually here in Roanoke and how were we going to connect to them? So, I mean, I've had a, we've had a, a plethora of support here in Roanoke. And so, um, I'm just one of the many voices that are are helping in this. With Farm Brigessa, we're hoping to uh, be able to to scale that. Um, We do want to have our two years under our belt for the business, just to make sure that we're at the maturity state and we're able to sustain and we have sustainable models. While these are projected models and projected numbers that we have, we want to make sure that we're sustainable. And so with that said, Finding other key partners in the area, but also outside of the area would be ideal. With Spotless, I'm just maintaining it. Um, that is that is what our stepping stone was. That's what our catalyst was mm-hmm. for the restaurants. And that was uh, that was the first step. And she's got systems built around Spotless really well. So yeah. that kind of runs itself. And she has different levels of, of leadership in it and supervisors that kind of handle. So if it trickles up to her, it's, it's more rare. Um, mm-hmm. if, if something escalates and, and she does actually have a really good reputation, Spotless does in Roanoke for taking really good care of their customers. I think she just hires well also. So she has a really good team. Very excited that we got to speak with you today, Kat. This is great. Thanks, Samantha, for setting this all up. What a fun conversation. I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening um, to my story and to tell you what's going on with Hispanic entrepreneurship and business owners here in Roanoke. Yeah, I think we need advocacy of all types. So this is one lane of advocacy for entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. There are multiple lanes and we need lots of people that are going to advocate on Capitol Hill with policymakers in the same way that CAD is. So that's kind of how I look at this contribution, you know, from a systemic perspective, it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to even be a piece of that narrative and to help elevate it. And I mean, the advocacy for you just telling your story is a piece of is a form of education itself. And so yeah, we're really excited to tell your story. If I'm ever in the Roanoke area, I will be visiting your restaurant. um, 100%. And I'll be like the 6,001 person to like (laughs) (laughs) the trajectory it's on, though, it'll probably be like 15,000 by the time I get there. But I I think I think this is a a field trip worthy adventure, Amber. (laughs) A burger. <laughs> you know, she's having a grand opening for the second location when? July 20th. July 20th. So I would love for yeah. you guys to, we'll send you an, she'll send you an invite. <laughs> yeah, send me an invite. It'll be after I graduate. So that'll work out well. Thank you again so much. We're really excited. We'll let you know when this launches and um, we're just excited to share your story. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great meeting both of you.